Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You see, now I possess the one Darwinian advantage that humans have over other animals, the ability to BS my way through anything. How about that guy for my beat? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> that was like getting a little like uncomfortable for me. Was it getting? Yeah. <laughs> Did you feel like a voyeur? Like a... <laughs> I felt like I needed to put a quarter in. You know? <laughs> <laughs> to keep to keep reading the thread, you have to insert a quarter. Like... <laughs> uh, Dave, every once in a while, gets emails praising his beats, wanting to Dave to send him his beats and there was just one and i happened to be cc'd on all of these of just like it was like a relationship it was like you guys kind of progressively got closer and closer like the <laughs> emails got uh, you know he was more a wonderful, and more sexual he was a wonderful man I, I, uh... <laughs> at first it was like you just met and then you're like sharing a milkshake with two straws you know and, uh... <laughs> eating a piece of spaghetti until we meet in the middle and then the last one, when I finally had to like ask to be removed, it was like the hot Carl. <laughs> uh, I don't know what that means. That's, no, no, uh, he was nice. He was nice. When Mr. Garrison is teaching kindergartners sexual <laughs> positions. <laughs> Remember when we had that discussion on sex education? Is that is that the sort of thing that you would be in favor of? Like that kind, that pedagogical style. <laughs> He puts his. He shows the kindergartners how to put a condom on, and he puts it on with his mouth. <laughs> Is that the one where the kids just start wearing condoms because he said yeah. that if you don't, you might get? Well, no, Miss uh, the the teacher, the other teacher. <laughs> Are you already drunk? Because I, I I better start catching up. Yeah, well, it's. I guess we've started the podcast. So today we're going to talk about. I don't know what the theme is. Being trapped in in a perspective, and all right, this is a bad sign. <laughs> I have to, you know how in morning in in movies they they like have these little cues, like when someone's driving and there are all these warning signs. Like I have all of these warning signs popping up in my mind about like how badly this is going to go because we're recording at night. We haven't recorded at night yeah. in a while. Night episodes <laughs> tend to share. Some qualities with each other. <laughs> Let me give it a yeah, shot, let's... though. So, because this is our ongoing series on um, where we pick a paper, and um, the central paper that you that you picked, we'll probably talk about other stuff. Is by um, does he go by Bernard Bernard, Bernard like the fucking man <laughs> Bernard Williams Williams <laughs> Bernard Williams. He's the um, best. I love and him. it is it's an essay in in. Although you know, I was talking to philosophers, a lot of people hate him. 
Um, I know. Uh, an essay in, in one of his books called Rawls and Pascal's Wager. I think the theme is when you unwittingly stack the deck in favor of your own position such that you are too ignorant to see right. that you are not making any progress. You've not you've not actually opened your mind. Um, to, I mean, there's yeah. two steps. There's one in which... Like you want to take a step out of your own perspective and develop a, a form of inquiry or a way of establishing certain principles that wouldn't just apply to people who have or share your perspective, but they would apply to everybody, to all, like all human beings. But then you end up in the method of trying to do that, you end up importing certain values and core principles that you have that are part of your perspective. And so you end up with principles that support your own specific point of view. And I think there's this happens in so many different domains, uh, in science, in um, ethics, right. in politics, in yeah and and it might and and I think that there are different ways in which this happens across these different disciplines, but like the core theme is we think that we're coming up with ways to justify or defend or or arrive at a position, and what we don't realize is that we've we've baked in our assumptions baked in. like they're already they've 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 come they've come preloaded you think that you are being as objective and, you know, as possible. So, so yes, that's the theme. But before we talk about that Yeah, paper. so um, I had this idea of, and I, and I have to give credit to Bobby Sue, who is a former graduate student, um, now working in the office in philosophy, right? We've been, like, passing along recommendations of things. I recommended Mr. Robot to her, which she loved. We were talking about movies, and I was my, my new thing that I'm really riled up about and enthusiastic about and love is Frank. And so I recommended that. And I asked her if she had any recommendations. She said, I don't know. Not, she said, although I will say this, like, I have a litmus test. I'm not going to be like, I, I'm not going to be able to go out with this person. I'm not going to be able to date this person. I'm not going to be able to be good friends with this person if they don't like drive was her example. Hmm. I thought that was a like you know I love I really love I love Drive. Do you like Drive? I do. Yeah. I really do. Great, movie. great movie. It's so so much. It's so much better than his follow up uh, movie. Only God forgives. Did you see that? Yeah. 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 Uh, anyway, so and I thought that was a good example of because it's not obviously one that is your favorite movie of all time or that, but it does sort of pick out something about a person if they don't like the movie you know what i mean and so so then that, that's when i thought well we should talk about this what's the movie that if the person you're gonna spend the rest of your life with doesn't like it then they're not that person then they're not that person so it's so i, I can't i gotta say i can't feel that strongly about it because um i've definitely dated people who didn't like things that were near and dear to me well, that's why you have to pick carefully. Yeah, but it, it wouldn't be a deal. I don't think there's anything that would be a deal breaker. It would just, I would just be so disappointed and then I would have to never talk about it. I would have to never talk about it. Oh, so see, mine are much stronger. <laughs> like I, I have a few here that if they don't like it, it's not going to work out. Like they'll make some other man very happy maybe or not. I don't know. 
but not me. Like we just have. It was nice knowing you. So you feel that strongly about the Titanic, huh? Yeah. <laughs> the the scene where he's he's painting her is just. I like that one um, that always shows up in the top ten on YouPorn, <laughs> like for the year, not for the month, if but for the year. Like that. Like... So can so I, like I'm gonna ask. I'm going to ask for permission to expand the question to um, not just movies. I, I'm totally down with that. Okay. I have a few other things, too. All right. All right you want me to start or you want to start? Yeah, yeah. You start. All right. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. <laughs> I'm weirdly excited. <laughs> okay. All right. So Drive is a really interesting one, and I think it would be it would be weird if the person I liked didn't like Drive, but it's not something that would rule it out entirely, so I'm not going to say Drive. That's an interesting one because I can see that if there were a woman who liked men and she liked Drive and he didn't, it's it's saying something different than, you know, it's a pretty violent movie and not that women don't like violent movies, but like, you know, there are stereotypes. Men are... <laughs> like if we it's just look at box violent. office, there's really one really violent scene. Yeah, it's viscerally violent. It's like yeah. one of those where the foley artists use melon to great effect. Yeah, <laughs> just the like it just takes you know that first scene, which is just so such a masterpiece oh, of filmmaking, so tense into the credit <laughs> sequence, which is awesome with that like kind of eighties neon. Just, I love that. Yeah. Like like if at that point you're not on board. <laughs> It's conceivable. It's conceivable yeah. that I would still want to spend the rest of my life with you. But it's <laughs> yeah. it's like conceivable like zombies, you know, like barely, <laughs> like not metaphysically possible, but it's like logically possible or something. I'm giving you a night call to tell you how I feel. I would give someone a break in that it's slow. It's a, it's like uh, you got to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a masterpiece. And I'll point people again to this blog that I always bring up, Tony Tony Zhu's um, Every Frame a Painting, where he analyzes yeah. the shots in, in Drive. And it's just, it's just even more brilliant than you think it is. But, okay. All right. I have some other ones, though. Um, again, In Bruges was also in that category, like barely conceivable, but now we're into not possible. Like it's not going to work out if they okay. don't like okay, the documentary Spellbound. Mm, oh, the spelling, the spelling bee. bee. Yeah. yeah. If you don't yeah. like that, it's, you know, you're a monster. Is, no hard you're feelings. 
but no yeah. no hard feelings hard feelings yeah maybe hard feelings um by the way is this just for romantic partners or do you think that this would matter for like best friends i'm gonna keep it to romantic partners but i but if like if it wouldn't apply to best friends then i want an argument as to why not like you know right. that's um right. but i but i've been thinking about it that way all right then it gets harder for me good i mean obviously if they don't like good fellas or something like that then it's not going to work out but that doesn't like everybody likes good fellas yeah so there's a diagnosticity right it's less about the movies and it's more about the information that it provides and liking good fellas doesn't provide me with that much information right Right. Because so many people like good, like they might think like, oh, it's not my favorite movie, but like who, who could deny that it's like a brilliant movie? Right. We, we, there are people I'm sure who just don't like it, who couldn't sit through it, who are like, but those aren't even people that we would be, that it would have gotten (laughs) to this place where we're at the litmus test. And then there are movies like Groundhog Day where it's it's, it's oh, a similar a good, kind of that's thing. That's a good one. That's but I think that's a good one, right? If Then I went back to Preston Sturges. So like Sullivan's Travels and Miracle of Morgan Creek. That's I've, the, I've never seen either of those or well, heard of them. We can't be friends. We can't be romantic. We can't, we can't be lovers. We can't be romantic. Congratulations, <laughs> Mr. Email Guy. That <laughs> you won. Dave Speeds. You win. <laughs> um, uh, Sullivan's Travels. It, Sullivan's Travels is is amazing, and uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek is like his probably his best funniest comedy. And those are just such good spirited, great, funny, well written, just entertaining movies that that would be a problem. You better be uh, keeping track of these because when I'm looking up these this shit to put in the notes page for verybadwizards.com slash I have slash notes. I, I, I have some notes. On <laughs> okay. that, I, this, I, I didn't take notes about our main topic. But I took notes on <laughs> Bad News Bears, you know, the 70s yeah, version. Yeah, yeah. Was that the 70s? Yeah. It's like 77, 76. You were watching that in college? Um, sorry. <laughs> Pink Panther movies. Jackie Brown's the only Tarantino movie I would put on there. And Hustle and Flow. That's it. Uh, look at you trying to trying to like pander to the urban audience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do. We we really only do well in rural areas. <laughs> we do. I'm I'm interested in Jackie Brown being your favorite Tarantino. No, I didn't say it was my favorite. That's uh, it was not, your most. That's why is it the most diagnostic then? Because the Jackie words. Brown is is a movie that tells you a little bit more about the person because it's not as like flashy and the you know everybody loves Pulp Fiction and it moves at a more languid pace, but it's probably his most like deeply felt movie. You know. Hmm. And it's also just really like great performances. Well, like Robert Fan- De Niro just getting stoned. And, like <laughs> you want to fuck? Like and just like yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> Bridget Fonda is like yeah. like bre- her best performance. And like where has she been? What happened to Bridget? Fonda? I don't know. What happened to Bridget? Like, <laughs> um, she's awesome in it, and Pam Greer is so good, and uh, Robert Forrester. Robert Forrester is brilliant. If it's diagnostic, I'm curious what it's. What is what feature of your romantic partner this is capturing? Is it like that they're willing to appreciate character development? Like it shows that they can appreciate a kind of slow pace and a kind of groove in a movie, and they don't need 
it to, you know, Goodfellas is a better movie, but it's also easier to watch. It's like pulling you in at every moment. I I like the idea of it being diagnostic. Yeah. And And I think that what you're capturing is some, some form of patience, like that, that where you're open enough to like, to let things, because I got to say the first time I watched Jackie Brown coming out of Pulp Fiction, which was, and still continues to be my favorite, my favorite movie probably of all time. Um, I was disappointed the first time and it took repeated viewings of it in order to really appreciate Chris Tucker in the (laughs) trunk of a car. (laughs) Um, So, so it's tracking some sort of patience and willingness to like sit same with drive, right? Drive has long, slow shots that like modern movies tend to not have. Like, so it's like long, like silent scenes where nobody's speaking that i agree that's 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 another diagnostic movie that you and it's and it's for similar reasons some movies don't wear their greatness on their sleeve and you need repeated viewings before you really appreciate them but then those are also the kinds of movies that you can watch again and again like i can watch i've probably watched drive like eight times jackie brown more than any other tarantino movie because it's just so rewatchable yeah, and Pulp Fiction is is, is yeah, I, I would say it's probably better, but like you get a little sick of it, it, and you need to give it like a few years before you see it again. Well, one of the problems with Pulp Fiction is there were so many like imitations of the style and like poor imitations that it actually yeah. they seem like tropes, even though they're that was the right. first time that right. they were done. Um, which sucks, which is totally unfair. It is totally unfair. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so what else? What else do you have? So, so there's diagnostic in the sense that like not everybody might like it, but it says something about the person. But there is diagnostic also in that um, a lot of people like it, and if you don't like it, there's something that right. I don't like about you. And one right. the the one movie that stands out to me that I can't imagine somebody wouldn't just. It's sort of like Groundhog Day, where if it's on TV, you watch it. It's it's right. almost it's almost like a it, it's almost like an entailment. If it is on TV, I will watch. It. And that movie for me is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I I, I am so there is no time in which Ferris Bueller's Day Off is on TV that I don't enjoy watching it. And like, yeah, you clearly don't agree with. Me. No, I mean, I like it. I'm yeah. not sure if that's the one that I would pick. It would but we, suppose it, would it came be on and you're sitting next to somebody you care about, and they're like, "Ugh," I'd be like, "Wait, wait, what?" <laughs> like, Ugh, it's just it's annoying. I'd be like, "You're annoying," <laughs> and then I just storm out of the the room, <laughs> slam the door. <laughs> um, David, what's wrong? <laughs> I'm nothing. Leave me alone. <laughs> I try to make the mileage go backwards. How is that not good? I'll tell you who the the thing that that's, that spoils the movie a little bit for me is Ferris Bueller's girlfriend is really not good. Uh, I like her. I, I, I like that that sort of. Uh, you know what I like about her is how she opened up to um. What's his face? Cameron. But, the uh, Cameron. Yeah, Cameron. Yeah. There's a point at which she like really brings him out of his shell. And like yeah. at that point, you think that she's just like some like stuck up like hot girl in high school. The whole his room, I just wanted his room like with that synthesizer. Um, 
where he had the little pulley rope that made it sound like he was snoring. I was like, that is fucking badass. Like, that is... I have no issue with it, but I, I, I could also, like, see myself leading a very happy life with somebody that... It just, it's not that they, they, they hate it. Like, if you hated it, it was weird. But it's like, eh... You know, if they if they were like, yeah, eh, it's kind of funny. Their comedies are better today. Yeah, no, and it's. I mean, I would put Ferris Bueller over Hustle and Flow any day. I I think that. I don't. I'm not sure what you were saying with the Hustle and Flow. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction might be on there for me. Like, I can't. I can't envision that somebody doesn't appreciate the perfection that is that is Pulp Fiction. Books. I just have one book. Um, go for it. I'm thinking a, about a confederacy of dunces. Never read it. Never oh read my it. god! I, I mean, I I supported the Union Army. I don't know. I don't. Know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Confederacy of dunces. It's a, by the way, cities, New Orleans. If you don't like New Orleans, then um, it's definitely not going to work out. But by um, New Orleans, I hope I hope you don't mean like the the shitty touristy French Quarter where they're drawing you into like the they're begging you to come into their bars. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. lived there for a year, remember. Yeah. There's a litmus test for humor, the, the sort of humor that I like, which it's not that I wouldn't be with someone, it's that I would respect them less. This is not just true of romantic partners, but like also of friends. The far side. Like if there is not at least one far side cartoon, then I don't I then our humor is very different. Like and and I don't know that we could laugh at the same things. Like, yeah, it's it's super diagnostic of a certain kind. Of, a little the do you know the comic the web comic XKCD? No. Yeah, that's a that's another one. I mean, it's a little bit nerdier, but but um, there's just a particular kind of weird humor, like particular kind of random humor that that is in those that that uh, I like I you show them to some people, it's like an amazing litmus that you show something that you think is hilarious to some people, and they just it's not that they think. Well, that was, I get how that's funny, but I'm, I didn't laugh that much. It's that they just don't get it. They're just like, I don't know why anybody would think that's funny. So are you just trying to like, say like really mainstream late eighties stuff and just to balance my like hipster artsy thing or like, well, XKCD is still going on. Like Seinfeld is the good, is that going to be your next one? And uh, no, although, although friends, it's just your <laughs> No, this is going to be the awkwardness that come that came up in our humor episode where you you just like mainstream shock comics like and and I like the subtle mainstream, like the, I don't the like wit it. the wit of like the singular panel with right like the two fish. This is a random example. Like I agree a, with you about uh, Far Side. I mean, it would be weird, but I don't know anybody that doesn't at least like Far the Far Side. Like, uh, do you yeah. know anybody? I, oh yeah, man. Like some people just don't get any of the Far Side. Like they they would never bother to read it. They just think that it's like weird and and just like that. Not, uh, just a random comic of like. Like, um, there's two, two little fish in bed and a mom fish. And the one fish says, mom, Theron's dried the bed again. But like some people would look at it and they'd be like, that's just stupid. Well, yeah, but you're not, you don't associate with those people. Who are those people? I didn't judge your, like your fucking, like. Well, no, I, I I specifically, I specifically chose ones that like somebody could possibly not like. Obviously I'm choosing ones that people don't like. Like you don't have to believe me, but we also were raised in a very different environment. You with That's your true. elite, 
East That's Coast, true. like educated. Like, not proud of it. <laughs> your travails that led you to be at Penn. <laughs> that was when you could still go to Penn and not come from a rich family. <laughs> TV? Do you have any TV? Um, besides Seinfeld. So Key and Peele, if they don't like Key and Peele. Oh, yeah. Key and Peele. Like Key, Dave Chappelle and Key and Peele. That's the kind of humor that, that I think is just... British office... British Probably. office that yeah there there is that kind of awkwardness in the British office that I think is diagnostic if you can some people just cannot deal with the awkwardness of the British right. office and, uh, and I think that that is a trait that I I would appreciate and if they're going to be with you they're going to you know have some awkward moments oh, so, <laughs> so, so many awkward so they need to be prepared practice their eye rolling <laughs> like distancing themselves in public from I guess deadwood Deadwood is a little more diagnostic. Can you think of being with somebody that doesn't like Deadwood? No, and I got to say that I was, when I started watching Deadwood, I had already watched it, I think, twice with um, my girlfriend, and she got really into it. I, it was like a real, it was like, yeah. oh, good. Like, okay, because this might actually worried. work. Yeah, I was like a little, <laughs> I was a little worried. I was like, you know, I was still at the time where I was trying to pick up what, what she would be sensitive to and whatnot. And I don't, just in case you're thinking, I, I don't hold other people to the standards of Star Trek fandom that I, that I have. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> in fact, it might be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, is there anything that if they liked, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head that would be disqualifying if they liked is the movie Crash. First not the all, Cronenberg. There's two. One, there's two. The, <laughs> yeah, not the Cronenberg. The other one, the Best Picture winner. Yeah, the Best Picture one. Why? Because it's just like it's so lame. Heart string pulling. Not just it's it's one of the most poorly written. Just You're so unsubtle. There's no nuance. If to it wins it. Best Picture, every, every it's character just is a so. certain way. The way it works is if you're racist. Like you wake up in the morning and you just say racist things until you go to sleep. And that's, that's, that's that how, how it you works. Are? But then you have one moment of like non-racism. And then if you're not racist, you never have a racist thought. You get like perfect scores on the implicit association <laughs> test. But then like you shoot a black guy at one point. Everybody is all one way except for one moment in it's, their life. It's... Yeah, it's very, and that's what the, that's what passes for complexity and nuance. The kinds of movies I hate are things, Dangerous Minds, and that Sandra Bull, like the like white white woman steps in to save like some black kids. Like I really Sandra Bullock steps stand. in, yeah, or Michelle Pfeiffer, yeah. or Michelle Pfeiffer <laughs> like turns the chair backwards to talk to Coolio. Um, How do I reach these kids? <laughs> There's one exception, which is a brilliant movie that uh, uh, Finding Forrester. Oh, yeah. With Sean Connery. And so I'm not throwing this in, but I because I'm not even 100 percent sure that I love the movie. But Frank was really good. And I think it's a movie that our audience would like yeah. and they may not have seen. Yeah, I mean, the texts that you were sending me after you watched Frank were like, I, I was there. Is he about to come or did he just come? like it was like they were more like the about to come. <laughs> about like, to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got especially excited about I tried to commit you to doing a podcast. On it. 
I was like, well, let me watch it first. Let's, let's take it easy. Take it a step at a time. And then you didn't text me back for like three days. And I thought, oh, God, he saw it. He saw it with Alex. I know. You were, all, like you were super sensitive about it. I know. <laughs> but I stand by it. Part of it is that it, I think it has just a fantastic ending. It's just the just an, the ending that made me cry like a baby it's like really moving and sweet but also funny and then a lot of interesting i'm convinced that they're like upon reflection i gotta watch it one more time but i think we'll probably end up talking about it there's finally like a certain class of movie that i don't think that somebody needs to like but they need to put up with it with me and um and not hate it because if they hated if they hated this kind of movie then I would just feel bad and my, my overall utility would go down and, in life. And those are, I'm going to lump together samurai movies, kung fu movies, and spaghetti westerns. Yeah. Like the kind of, the kind, like, because everybody likes like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, fine. Like, everyone likes Kurosawa or whatever. But, but I'm talking about the kind that come on. Yeah, like hard like boiled. Say, like on a Sunday afternoon where like the killer, like pad, <laughs> poorly dubbed, <laughs> like those are just good. Like I love them. Like fistful of dollars. Yeah. Those spaghetti Westerns where they do this ADR thing where like they, like it's their voices, but they're still not synced up to the, <laughs> because they all went into the studio and re-recorded their lines. So it's kind of like off. So, well, it's some dubbed, of them were Italian. Like, yeah. it's, it's dubbed. Yeah, a lot of them were Italian doing Yeah, but speaking. even the English actors are dubbing their own lines. Yeah. 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 It's the weirdest effect. Um, and I remember I got the DVD and thought it was broken. <laughs> and I was really pissed. And so then I got like another DVD of it. And then I realized, oh, that's just how it is. But I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we should take a Let's break. Let's take a break. I need to put more batteries in this too. So let's let me. Is that a euphemism for doing a line of cocaine? <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say when you asked, like, what would hate if they were it was their favorite movie? 
and like shit like Beauty and the Beast. Like, I hate musicals, let alone like cartoons. How are you not going to like Beauty and the Beast? It's a fucking musical. I, it's like a, and, and Angela Lansbury is a teapot. <laughs> the Lion King. Harrow, no, fuck the Lion King, but Beauty and the Beast is all, a great movie. All of those, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast are all the same. They're Little Mermaid. Same. Beauty and the... You don't like a strong heroine, is what it is. You want your princesses to be docile. And, I don't want princesses. Uh, I don't. Want, <laughs> I want real women. I want to see bestiality in my fairy. <laughs> That's true. Probably ruined a generation of kids who now think it's okay to like fuck a werewolf or whatever. <laughs> no, it didn't ruin them and enlighten them. <laughs> oh, what we do in the shadows is one that. Um, it would be tough for me to. Yeah, that's like, like Bella's favorite movie. Like I yeah, isn't it? It's so awesome. <laughs> I think we drink virgin blood because it sounds cool. I think of it like this: if you were going to eat a sandwich, you would just enjoy it more if you knew no one had fucked it. <laughs> I love that structure of joke. <laughs> um. This is the time where we take a moment to thank you guys all for your support, for the emails and the reviews, the donations, and the Amazon click-throughs. If you are interested in giving us support for the first time or continuing it, there's a number of ways you can do it. First is just communicate with us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet at verybadwizards, at tamler, at peas. If you want to leave us an iTunes review, that always helps. Um, yeah, leave some iTunes reviews. I think that does help and will get us, boost us up a little on the chart. Yeah, we've been like sort of static, staticky. It really yeah. doesn't. Just, there's no rhyme or reason. Um, no. Um, and uh, if you want more tangible support, go to our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support. And there you can click on the Amazon link. And just shop as you would normally on Amazon. You don't pay any more, but we get a, like a little little chunk of change. Um, or you can donate to us directly via PayPal. And we really, really appreciate all of the people who have done all of those things. So uh, the other thing is we had, I think you asked for volunteers to send possible t-shirt designs. Oh, yeah. And we might have a winner. And we got a great uh, one. That was yeah. Yeah, we received a, a great design. People really seem to like it. So we're going to try, I think, to incorporate it um, into our next T-shirt. But that doesn't mean we're not open to, to different designs. I actually really want a mug on this. So the, the design by Nelson Walkham, thank you. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, uh, has has our, our little chimp and our favorite review of all time, one star repugnant. <laughs> Repugnant. You know, I gotta star. say, I was like a little hurt when I first read it. You know, I'm like, I'm like sensitive, but now I'm just like, it's like I'm, just proud, I'm so proud of it. That review is like, we've gotten more <laughs> mileage out of that review than pretty much anything else besides porn, mm. anti-Semitism, and <laughs> like Kant, when, Kant when, when life gives you lemons. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, we didn't okay. just make lemonade. We made like lemonade, like gri- spiked with. We gravies. made like Mike's, yeah. Mike's, <laughs> Mike's heart. <laughs> that would be a funny thing that like a like some douchey guy could say in a movie. I mean, I don't just make lemonade. I make, I make Mike's hard, hard lemonade. lemonade. So, you want to introduce the topic? 
All right. So part of me feels like I might have dropped the ball, at least in one sense. We had been selecting classic essays. I selected Isaiah Berlin's Two Concepts of Liberty. You selected a paper which was actually like exactly what I think this thing should be all about. It's a paper that is I it's kind of a masterpiece, but that very few people have heard of. I talked to a colleague today who listens to our podcast and he said, How have I never heard of that paper? Yeah, it's weird. So that was a great selection. And then I wanted to sort of on this theme of the to- the totalitarian ego, you know, and like trapping us in our own sort of perspective, our prism of of values and biases. I wanted something and you know, he mentions science and how there is parallels to this in science how, uh, you know, the theory-laden observation is and how tempting it is to to ask questions in a way that will get your desired result. So I was looking for something by Thomas Kuhn or something where, you know, that, that, that plays on that theme of how it is in the sciences. And then I thought, really what this, what I'm interested in is a kind of a broader point. And it's like a, almost like Nietzschean perspectival, perspectivism idea or that, a kind of Marxist a, idea. Is that a real word? Perspectivism? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's not a great word. Um, I'm an internalist about perspectivalism. They're probably, that probably is a position. <laughs> and to be fair, it's not like we, were, we weren't going to read the structure of the scientific revolution. Right, we weren't. <laughs> I do feel like there's something like by like Helen Longino or something like that on feminist philosophy of science. I, I ended up just sort of choosing a really short essay by Bernard Williams, who I love. This is like the longest the apology man. you've ever given. <laughs> I know, and I haven't even really talked about what the You're like, is. listen, it's not big. It probably won't make you feel good. But thank you for having sex with me in advance. Anyway. <laughs> it's not going to be as hard as you want it to be. <laughs> Okay, I picked the essay I picked is more about like a topic, a short essay by Bernard Williams on Pascal's wager and and Rawls and Rawls's original position, um, thought experiment, which I believe is missionary. (laughs) John Rawls, yes, (laughs) no, the original position. I would also think that that was John Rawls's favorite (laughs) position. Like that's the position that you would choose under the veil of ignorance. You didn't know who you were going to be. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like the Maximin approach to sex. <laughs> the under the veil of ignorance doggy style is the position. Um, Reverse cowgirl. <laughs> this, this episode is going to be so difficult to edit. So, so, so the idea of the ar- the general argument that it's, you well, I, it's 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 an example. Yeah, it's a subset of it. It's these two steps. It's like yes, we recognize that we have values, and we recognize that we have certain core moral beliefs, but we're gonna develop a method to take us out of that and just come up with a rational way of judging which moral system is the best. So first, there's that urge to step back. The, the step one is the urge to step back and get outside of your perspective um, and try to take a you know the view from nowhere or the view from everywhere right. and then and then there is 
the second step, which is what Bernard Williams accuses Rawls especially, but also Pascal of doing, is sort of smuggling in or baking in, as you said in the opening segment, certain assumptions that are part of your perspective, part of your worldview. And then the result is going to be something that coincidentally enough, sort of supports your original beliefs and value system. So with Rawls, it was sort of a kind of liberal Kantian individualism that he kind he starts he starts out trying to defend, but then the accusation is is that he imports some of those assumptions into into the process of of getting them back again. So this the first thing I thought is that this essay scratches all of your itches. Right. It's it's um, in in line. And in fact, when we talked about thought experiments, we talked a lot about the original position. And, and I can see now how this essay probably influenced you. Um, well, no, uh, I read it like um, like three weeks ago for the first uh, time. for the first time, which is that they're like it's a fool's errand to to decontextualize and and sort of by process of subtraction the, sh- the sheer will of subtracting your own biases which is consistent with a totalitarian ego like and all of the work on how hard it is to de-bias yourself like um that that you that, that it's it's nigh impossible to ask that yeah. people um strip themselves and it's interesting that Rawls asks people to strip themselves of almost everything other than like ex- except for the faculty of reason that he thinks is right. the 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 very one that's going to lead to the right answer it's again very important that that's the step he asks you to take he doesn't he, he doesn't ask you to strip yourself of all reason and just keep your desire um <laughs> Right. It's like it's un- <laughs> well, right. It's he wants to turn it into decision theory. So I guess we should maybe explain for yeah. Rawls what we're talking about. So Rawls's original position famously is trying to establish principles of justice. So the idea is you're you're in this hypothetical position of choice where you are self-interested. You're trying to come up with the best principles that will, you know, further your own interest. The the problem is you don't know anything about yourself. You don't know what kind of talents you'll have, whether you'll be born into a good family or a bad family, whether you'll be smart or dumb, ugly worthless. or good-looking. You're going to be randomly assigned to one of many conditions and those conditions are just various statuses in society and everything and you don't know like that one of the interesting parts of it is you don't even know your conception of the good so you don't even know what your values are you don't know whether you'll like you'll love family you know you value family above all else or religion some sort of religion above all else you just don't you you have no idea like what are the things that give meaning to your life you're not yet a republican or a democrat you you haven't yet felt the burn and so this is so this this thought experiment that's the first step it's it's a method it's supposed to be here's a method at arriving what would be a just society so the rational part is like you do what's in your self-interest but the fair part is that you don't get to start from unequal ground like everybody's at the same place in the original position because of the veil of ignorance and so whatever people would agree to is going to be the fair and just 
principles. And Rawls's idea was, well, since we don't know what our conception of the good is, we're going to need these primary goods like rights, liberty, individual liberty, and, and, and have our rights respected, and some degree of wealth and a kind of respect. I mean, literally all Kantian things <laughs> that, that, that that's what he, this is one of the things that Williams um, criticizes him for is the primary goods and the way he orders the primary goods are exactly what like a Kantian Western individualist would think are the things that are, that matter most. But those things are supposed to be the things that are just prerequisites for you getting the goods that you might want out of life. Right. And that's why you're going to start out at a baseline of, I need these primary goods so that I can pursue whatever it is that I want out of life and I find meaning in life. From. Right. So the way I always imagine this is like a literal huge veil and a bunch of free-floating spirits like behind it wondering what status in life they will be randomly assigned to and having to like sort of vote for the structure of society that will ensure um that they that they will not get fucked over um and so somebody is going to be the worst off so what they're voting on essentially is how bad it should the worst off person be right and so yeah. this is the well, no, they're not. That's that's already like taking in the difference principle, like putting that in. I mean, you, you're begging the question if you say they're trying to make sure that they don't get fucked over. That doesn't have to. That's not necessarily the rational goal. It could no, be no, that no, they no. want to roll the dice. They just want to do what it, whatever is the most rational thing to do to further their own interests. Yeah. So I should say, but but Rawl seems to think that what that pursuing your rational self-interest entails is that you will want a society in which you can at least guarantee that you won't be below a certain level of and and what he ends up uh, producing are these principles that allow inequality but only if it benefits the least advantaged and that sort of assumes a lot why would you necessarily do that why wouldn't you go for utilitarianism where You'll just have the best chance of leading the the life with the most net utility. And the reason is he thinks that it's rational to be risk averse in this situation. That like up to a certain level of primary goods, you really need to have that. And then everything and it gets like once you get past that, it's like diminishing returns. And And this is actually in our previous discussion. This was one of the things that that you pointed to. But I hadn't really thought of because I, I guess I am risk averse. And so if if I were distributing resources in this fictional world, you said like, well, fuck it. I'm willing to take the gamble. Like if you could be if if I could be but rich, like and there is a risk that I will be like really in misery, like let's roll the dice, motherfucker. Like, yeah. let's do it. And that's not necessarily irrational. Like, I mean, it's not even close to necessarily irrational. It is simply a, a, a value that you, that you might hold or a, or a propensity that you might hold. And just because he's asked you to like remove various psychological aspects of yourself, he's still assuming that you are retaining this psychological aspect that is not a feature of rationality. It is a feature of an just individual of his, of him being a bit of a pussy. Right. And um, and so you might say, well, no, you ought to care about 
the worst off, but that's not the method that he's proposing. Right. Right. He's not like it's it's tempting to say, well, yeah, he's right because the conclusion is right that we should care about the worst off. But that's not what the method is saying. The method is saying that that will be concluded if you just start off as purely self-interested behind the veil of ignorance. So that's right. And 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 it, and and there's a there's a kind of complication that Williams brings up that I hadn't really known about or thought about which is that there are also principles that once you're out in society everyone will recognize as just and will not want to change there's no backsies in right uh, exactly the, and so yeah no that's a great way of putting it <laughs> but 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 as williams points out like well how does he know there's not going to be any backseas? It's not going to be because people say, oh, well, this is what I would have chosen in the original position. They're going to have to recognize it as just and the the structure of the system is going to have to be such that it's stable and that the people who are, say, dealt the best initial hand and end up having to give a good size of their income to the least advantaged, they're going to have to, the system is going to be, have to be such that that's what they are still willing to do. Right. Like I, now that they're real humans, now that they're like little yeah. ghostly bodies have been like, but like incorporated and the veil has been opened, they will by necessity, according to Rawls, agree that this was the just thing way to do things so so there's that as a problem is like well why would you necessarily pick that and you know people have used the original position it's a very like it's a very powerful methodology because it seems like it's it's both kind of fits our sense of prudential reasoning you know practical reasoning but also with this fairness that the veil of ignorance provide so people have used it to try to justify theories of punishment like retributivism this is what you would choose this is the institution of punishment that you would choose in the original position because it allows you to have control over your own fate there are assumptions that are baked into this thought experiment and one of them that i think is pretty interesting that doesn't so people the risk averse thing obviously is not something that i came up with it's something that people have have criticized him about in the past also wondering whether you have enough if 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 all your values are stripped for you do you have enough to even make any decisions in the original position that's another if if this is a decision theoretic yeah um task it seems weird to for decisions to be made in the absence of all this um but the, but yeah. but here's the one that I think is most interesting in some ways, and this is the from a Marxist critique from the paper Marxism and Retribution, Jeffrey Murphy of the original position being used to to justify retribution, but it but it can work to all of to all of Rawls. So his conception of rationality as a kind of self interested egoistic choice like maximizing an individual's self-interest is a is very sort of western and bourgeois capitalist free market individualist kind of way of thinking of rationality he doesn't get to help himself to that the way murphy puts it is you know you start out with a bourgeois conception of rationality you're going to get um, a bourgeois 
theory of justice, a bourgeois theory of punishment. And then that society that you'll have will think this is because they're competitive and egoistic. They'll think that um, this is the right conception of rationality. So it's this big cycle that just sort of feeds into itself. What do you think about that? I, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm less, I'm less sensitive to this style of argument because it, it itself assumes that if you are a Western, if you endorse the sort of view of rationality that Westerner philosopher, Western philosophers have endorsed, then that is prima facie reason to doubt that you are right about rationality. And I think that that is neither here nor there. I think that that, that so you just fact, think we lucked out we got born. Well, into we may or right. we may not have, but it's not evidence that it's right or wrong that it came from a particular perspective. Right. Like there is there is what if like there's a way in which you could say, well, look, there's no ground to evaluate whether or not something is rational and then fine. Like being Marxist isn't going to get you any closer to to the right idea of rationality than being a Western, you know, white male philosopher. No, that's true. Um, But it would but it should make you doubt that there is a single conception of rationality. it, it, It could. But it again, it doesn't. It it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, like because there's diversity of opinion about what what it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It doesn't disprove it, like, but it gives you good reasons maybe to doubt that it's it's universally true. It gives it Does gives it need, you a, it, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I this and we've had this discussion many times, but but it is. It is no evidence to me. It's it's neither here nor there if somebody doesn't know math um, and that knowledge of math is unequally distributed among rich, educated people. But that's right? like it, that's that's different because well, those different people, be- when they are presented with math, when they're taught math, they don't have some sort of alternate system. They're like, oh, yeah, that's that works. That's that's how I think about it, too. Whereas if. The, the the conception of rationality may be that it's just incommensurable. If there were evidence that people who came to the Western educational system and changed their mind about what rationality was, like, I don't think that you would take that as evidence that, that it must be right. I think you would take it as just like influence, non-rational influence on their view. That's like, possible. I mean, you know, I come at it from my perspective as well, which is where this whole thing gets... Very kind of Rortian, postmodern, confusing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And you, you, you flirt with postmodernism in a way that makes me um, squirm Hard. in my seat. <laughs> squirm in the bad way, like like I, like there's a big diarrhea coming, and that I like I better stop the show. <laughs> but what about like religion? It's the same argument for religion. Like, why should you think your religion is the right religion? If you're born in like that, you just happen to have been born into the religion that's the true religion. And this is the other part of the Bernard Williams essay is on Pascal's wager, (laughs) which sort of assumes that it's either a Christian God or or no God, or at least that 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 the like if there is a God, it's probably a Christian God. Um, And it has Um, the qualities of a Christian God, right? It it rewards believers and with with eternal heaven and punishes disbelievers with eternal hell right i mean i get what you're saying i i do think though that there are like when we're using the term rationality right now we're using it broadly and even in the marxist way like i'm a little uncomfortable calling talking about rationality in this in this sort of um 
Broadway, like there is a there is a sense, a very local sense of logic that is supposedly at the heart of rationality that I do think is different from religion, that I do think that people are persuaded about certain fallacies like modus ponens most so I, I mean i'm a little like it's it's hard for me to totally conceive of this but why should rationality be thought of as self-interested ends means kind of thinking well for so the individual i i agree that this that this is not necessarily the right conception of rationality what i don't want to grant is that there is no conception of rationality that would be right universally. I just think that rationality, it's like, it's going to be limited. Like it's, it, it can give us, right. Even though you rail against like consistency and stuff like that, I think there are some basics um, that ought to be universal to rationality. And that this is where I agree with, with Williams that Rawls is baking into the notion of rationality, things that actually are external to rationality, like the assumption that self-interest ought to drive I, I wanted to say something about like the sort of brilliance of the I don't know I, I bet you he did it unwittingly, uh, but of Rawls is um, starting with self interest as the basic universal, yeah, and ending up with a liberal notion of justice, right? Right, that is brilliant. That is saying like let's let's take the let's take that everybody can agree. Like that self-interest should be pursued. Fat guys with and, their cigars. And, right. <laughs> exactly. Like those old cartoons, <laughs> those political cartoons of the fat cat. Everybody agrees on that, right? Yeah, yeah, We should pursue a self-interest. Okay. Like now imagine this and then boom, you have like a society where there's like massive amounts of redistribution of wealth. And like that I think is the rhetorical power. Now yeah. I agree though that that's hand wavy. But I think that's why it's successful. It's successful, yeah. It's successful in in, in the sense that people are yeah. like we're still talking about it. I don't know how mm -hmm. much influence mm -hmm. it had, practically speaking, politically. But yeah, it's like successful. Like Taylor Swift has a successful album. Like I'm independent of whether or not you like. Or are you on? Are you on <laughs> Kanye's? Popular. Are you on Kanye's side? I mean, Kanye is a genius. I don't, I don't know that Taylor Swift is a genius. <laughs> I don't know. Like everybody loves Taylor Swift. I I mean, I, I have no idea. Yeah, I have no. So what I was going to say is, though, that there's still these like very Western bourgeois, you know, like the Marxists still can criticize Rawls for having this very strong individualist conception of rights. And, you know, and this is the part of Marx that I really like this. I The, the thing that's somewhat offensive about it is that it has pretensions to stepping outside of the liberal worldview to then justify the liberal worldview. But really, it's just giving, to use his terminology, a transcendental sanction of the status quo, a transcendental sanction of the existing rules. And yeah, Rawls would call for more distribution of wealth. Yeah, I was going to say this is actually like pretty a pretty hardcore liberal view that it's not within yeah. within the sort of Western free market democracy kind of worldview. Like it it doesn't go out. It doesn't allow itself to break free of that. Um, a strong system of individual rights, and you know, I'm I, you know, I'm in favor of those things, but I don't pretend, or I try not to pretend that there's some sort of rational justification for it. Right. But I do want to say, like, I I, I just want to, like, I think defend a little bit that 
if there like that there are there are universal minimal standards of what we might call rationality that you could get everybody to agree on like you know some basic logic principles that like underlie math and reasoning and that yield truth in a reliable fashion it's just that those you know that Gardal sort of showed that you can't have you, well complete how did he do it how did he show it <laughs> Um, well, I can walk you through it, the proof. Well, you, well, you <laughs> can walk me through it, but you'd be doing a whole lot of using those very rules, right? Like, that, I mean, without those rules that everybody agrees on, you can't get to incompleteness, right? So it obviously is paradoxical, but I don't think that that's what's, I don't think Girdle's incompleteness is really what's fucking with this no. particular no. view, right? right? So, so I, I imagine that if you could say like, oh, let's like, everybody agrees on the principle of identity, right? Like. If you could build a political theory from that step, then I wouldn't care if you right. were, you know, a Western bourgeois person or whether you were a Marxist or whatever. Um, it's just that I don't, I don't think that there's anything that you can start with that's not already laden with those assumptions. Right. If you start so with something if, too minimal, then it's not going to give you the the basis for any kind of decision. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that if a Marxist started with a thought experiment that had Marxist assumptions, they would be just as wrong and we'd be. Cri- I, like that, I'm yeah, I'm, that, that's almost certainly true, which is why yeah. you get in this position of kind of quasi absurdity where and I think this is a very Williamsy thought is don't come up with a better way of like finally achieving that transcendental position where you've shed yourself of all biases but just just get rid of that aspiration in the first place just just accept that you are trapped within a certain perspective and that other people are trapped within that perspective with you and work within that and stop pretending that that you're doing too much more than that that's yeah. I think easier said than done and this problem I mean at the at the deepest level the same problem percolates down to like just scientific inquiry to which is another case where you're trying to step outside of and 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 you know the the dream is to get pure observation and you end up finding it difficult not to bake into your methodology something that will give you the desired results. And we get this obviously. in Right. So there's this big, there's this huge underestimated effect where you start with a conclusion and you don't realize that this is influencing your, your attempt to move from basic principles to the conclusion is already just deeply tainted by your conclusion. Right. Like, Your hypothesis, and, which is supposed to be just be like a hypothesis. And we'll just look, we'll just look at the evidence and see if it supports it. Or right. Right. Uh, like nobody's going to say, like, you know, I believe in liberal justice, but let, let me come up with this thought experiment and be like, holy shit. Turns out that like this is actually the wrong thing. <laughs> I thought the veil yeah. of ignorance were going to yield these Kantian liberal principles. But, in, <laughs> but it turns out, turns out it's like fascism. Whoa, <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> um. Uh, it, like, we should actually mention why why the Pascal's wager. So Pascal. Oh yeah, let's talk about that, and then we'll yeah, get to yeah, the like, so, Yeah, famously, you know, Pascal said, "Like, look, if you believe in God, and there is no God, all you get is death for eternity, which you're going to get anyway. Right. If you don't believe in God and God exists, you're going to suffer. You're going to torment in hell forever. Yeah. 
And so, and you will the opportunity cost is like living and and eternal bliss. So, if if we turn this into a decision theoretic problem, even even Bernard Williams admits, like, though he disagrees with this argument, he's like, at least at least Pascal has on his side something like infinite suffering, which is like pretty clear that you can't, (laughs) you can't. Right. I mean, there is a way in which the argument can still work if if you get rid of some of his assumptions that are problematic it might still work just because it really is a choice between infinite bliss and infinite versus infinite suffering or just the same if those assumptions held everybody agreed like you know probably in pascal's time like there is a christian god and like it's either there is a christian god who eternally punishes or no no no, but even if it's like there could be a bunch of different gods and it still might make sense to at least pick one and (laughs) pick one with the the, with the heaven and the hell because not picking right yeah exactly so even (laughs) if if you pick wrong you pick wrong you know you're kind of fucked but like at least you're giving yourself a chance pick the one that lets you drink and fuck yeah um yeah right i mean there's that but but it's uh, one of the things i love about the williams article is he clearly has more respect for pascal's wager than the original position which is great (laughs) uh the the reason that the assumptions that don't work or that are problematic that people have raised are a you know, he sounds like it's he's, he he says it's like fifty fifty, but that's obviously not necessary for the argument, given that you have the infinite um, right. disparity of infinite pleasure or infinite pain. But um, but also that the God that you're believing, and this is where you start baking in your assumptions, because he was a Jansenist Catholic, you know, uh, that, that that this God will value your belief so much even a belief that is generated by just you playing the odds in this somewhat right. cynical yeah yeah that he'll be like oh i'm glad you chose that you chose based on this like calculation i tend to believe that sincerity would be what one of the things that god wants i mean he might you could imagine a god that was like no i just wanted you to go like do the best you could based on the evidence that you had right. and if you really just did this as a cynical ploy then fuck you you're going to hell in fact that's what i would do if i was god yeah. it's like no kiss um, ass but- you're not doing you're not getting in i mean that's kind of what we do in classes right <laughs> like what well, show some sincerity. Right. Don't don't just come kiss my ass so that you get a good grade. I mean, it probably still <laughs> works, but we try to not make it. Uh, I won't even. Say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you won't even take the chance. I won't even get it the, the, my my own Pascal's wager in this case means that there is no there's no reasonable uh, a possible chuckle be... versus getting fired <laughs> exactly <laughs> versus like a Title Nine lawsuit. <laughs> but but yeah, in this spirit, there is this guise of clarity in in going back to basic principles that is um, tempting. Everywhere, as you point out, politics, science, even in in personal your pers- the decisions that you make um, in your life. One of the things that that we talked about a little bit but didn't make it into the last episode was 
was this discussion of of um at the social psychology and personality conference this discussion of the moral foundations theory and the notion of purity and the talk that i gave was essentially critiquing um the notion of purity by saying the way that we measure things so i'll make this more broad and not just about purity because this can happen across all like the kind of psychology that i'm familiar with if you cr- construct a measure, like let's use a very simple example uh, if and that I'm guilty of. If you use sacrificial moral dilemmas with two options, one is a consequentialist option and one is a deontological option. And then you conclude that there are, that your that human psychology is fundamentally built in that it reasons in one of two ways about moral stuff. Right. You have, all you have done is shown that you are, you've just reified your measures, <laughs> right. right? If you created a measure that had eight things, you might conclude that, that the human moral mind is like divided up into eight parts and moral foundations does five or whatever. Like there's, there is no bottom up sort of theory free, way to just gather data right you've only shown that your intro to ethics teacher in college never quite got to virtue ethics (laughs) exactly exactly in which to to you know to like to toot my own horn and that of my co-authors we like character is one of the things that we've been working on and we're just like you know it's amazing that it's been ignored um in this recent wave of moral psychology to the extent that it has but um, but yeah, like if you, you know, if I don't know, I mean, this is almost a trite point, but it's one that is so prevalent. It's so deep that, that, um, I, but make I, your purity just, point, like, cause that one yeah, so seems the, the like it might, point, like, that's what moral foundations theory was supposedly criticizing is like liberal morality, which liberals assume is all of morality is just about harm consequentialism and fairness like you know rights and kantianism your thing and he tried to broaden it out from that so that it includes these other factors like hierarchy and community and loyalty and and purity right i think that move was a good one right trying to come up with a broader like in fact it was it was motivated by cross-cultural work by rick schwader and stuff like that but i think that not and not to harp on moral foundations theory too much, but when we had Jesse on, um, we did talk about this at length. It is a Jesse Graham. Jesse Graham. The it is clear when you look at the measure of so of moral foundations, right? The 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 MFQ, the moral foundations questionnaire. So here's the sexy finding. The sexy finding is that liberals, as you just said, care about these harm and justice and fairness and that conservatives care about these other things like purity, authority um, and in-group loyalty. But when you look at the measures of what loyalty, uh, in-group loyalty is, there's patriotism, right? There's like stuff about like the American flag and then there's stuff about like family, I think. And those are already things that conservatives care about more than liberals. But there are plenty of issues that like liberals demonstrate loyalty toward that are not in that questionnaire. 
but so here's what happens is you give like 10 million people this MFQ, the Moral Foundations Questionnaire. You find that conservatives answer like that they're more patriotic. And because that's the because that's the way you chose to measure loyalty, then you conclude that they that conservatives care more about loyalty. If you had measured it another way, so this is another way in which it's baked baked into the theory, and in this case, the measure, you're gonna find what you wanted to find. Right. Yeah. In it and it's not really a bottom up data free approach. The the purity dimension, which is what I was talking about, is the worst of them all because it lumps together um, a whole bunch of stuff. It's almost like this category of of stuff that just didn't make it into the other ones. So when you look at what's measured, it is um, things like, I believe some things are wrong because God said they're wrong. I believe That's that good. some things are wrong because they're gross. Now, what do those things, two things have in common, right? Like, it's certainly the case that, like... M- Many religious people believe that murder and rape is wrong because God said it's wrong. But those are like also (laughs) presumably because God is telling you not to harm people. Um, But what what you end up capturing then is a whole bunch of conservative people who tend to be more religious, who agree, who endorse the statement that, you know, God matters um, and and you call them high impurity. What about the gross part? What if you just did that? Would that be okay? You yeah. just did the gross ones. So, and so you just counted those. I, the, and that was my call. I said, like, the purity dimension needs to, needs to be unpacked because there's religious. So, it's even in the labels that people use. Sometimes they call them sanctity. Sometimes they call it purity. Sometimes they call it divinity. Um, and sometimes they include metaphorical things like tainting your soul. I think all of those should be separable and. So, for instance, there should be a domain that's just about grossness, and then there should be one that's about, like, um, divine commands. And then there might be one that's more about, like, sort of how much you care about this metaphor of the body being, like, you know, kept clean, the soul being kept clean. And, yeah, like, the period, like, don't defile your soul by doing a bad thing. And I bet you all those three things are probably tied to different psychological mechanisms. But because we lump them all like through, in this case, just historical, I think just weirdly historical reasons, they all get lumped together. We're actually missing out what I think are important and interesting distinctions that some people might really be motivated by the gross stuff. Some people might really care about the metaphor of their soul as being pure. And some people really care about God and what God says. And those aren't the same, necessarily the same, the same people or the same kinds of moral judgments. But they end up because he lumps them together, height and, and Jesse, he, and they end up being able to kind of support their initial hypothesis about conservatives and liberals. Is that the idea? Yeah. And so what happens is you can get hit over the head with like millions of data points where you see like, look, people who score high on purity are also conservative. And you're and nobody really bothers to look at the items. And I'll post the items, I think, on the website. No one bothers to read the actual items that are used to measure this. And because and, I think if they did, they would realize that essentially what you're asking people is, are you conservative? Are you conservative? 
<laughs> like twice. You're asking them twice. And that's are not you, a real finding. Right, right. Conservatives, there's a high correlation between people who are conservative and people who are conservative. Right, right. It's like a, there was a conference once that my friend told me that he went to health. It was a health psych conference that um, he saw a presentation showing that there was a very robust correlation between the number of beds in a hospital and the number of patients. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even have to pee hack that they one, right? Like that was... This is I'm like, why wasn't that a 1.0 correlation? <laughs> well, not everybody is in a bed. Maybe no, someone's yes. wet the bed. Yeah, <laughs> they've, they've tried the bed. They've tried. Uh, um, so, so that's I, funny. That's funny. Just that, don't, don't did you like me. that? Now, now yeah. we can date. <laughs> um, but but I think, and it's not to pick on. In fact. I think that um, Jesse actually afterwards was really, really open to to unpacking the concept of purity. I think he was he was pretty amenable to this this criticism. Um, but there, the, like in general, I think we completely underestimate how much we are failing to see the layer of assumptions that we're using before we even go about collecting data in science. And I wanted to get to this. I know I've been rambling on, but I, I'll ask you this. I think I'm optimistic that there that science can have checks and balances so that we will like you know in a sort of adversarial way that we will eventually yield truth um but I don't know that if you're that optimistic um well it depends how deep you want to take this I mean I agree at so, on some level with the kind of Kuhnian point that it's inescapable to that you're working within paradigms and that the paradigms sort of provide you with ways of inquiring that will support the paradigm until one day it's broken and there'll be a new paradigm um, for whatever reason, but not necessarily because you have a better approximation of the truth with the new paradigm. So, but I don't even think that's more what you're saying, right? You're more saying that even if that's true, that some of these kinds of things working within normal science can be addressed. Like, you know, you give this criticism of height and Jesse height, you know, maybe takes a break from, railing about campus uh, protests and microaggressions <laughs> and trigger warnings to sort of revise the theory or Jesse and then um, it gets better. Like they, they're picking out more interesting distinctions. Yeah. And and you, you maybe you're still within this normal science paradigm, this broader normal science paradigm in social psychology at this particular moment in history, but, but, but it's definitely refining it within that. Right. So yeah, I agree with you on, on that. Like, and, and, and there's a lot of room for that to happen. Like you're talking about like, the moral psychology like consequentialist like yeah. that needs like, someone needs to break out of that yeah yeah it's 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 and insane it's even even my attempts at critiquing it are doing so from inside of it <laughs> from still it's not like you're like, like radical moral thinker like, <laughs> you just think that there might be more to morality <laughs> right. than consequentialism in <laughs> right the like there is a third thing <laughs> it's the same with like dual dual process theories um, there, there was, there was, um, there's a website called edge.org that asks a yearly question 
And one year there was a question that I ended up just not answering because I realized the answer that I wanted to give was just negative. And, and the question was, what scientific idea needs to be retired? Um, and the only thing I wanted to write was the idea that there are two things. Like, right. <laughs> it's just so rampant. Like yeah. dual process theories in, in psychology that like posit to like, it's like there's, there's no reason that nature cared to organize things in pairs. Like, right. but it's not, we're not like Noah's Ark. <laughs> we're not like Noah's Ark. And even Noah sometimes had seven so they could eat like the clean animals. You make it be as few principles as possible, even if it doesn't explain the phenomena anywhere near Yeah, as yeah. Well People really it. misunderstand yeah. parsimony as a word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah parsimony uh, doesn't mean simple enough so that I can understand it. <laughs> and also, like, this happens in philosophy a lot because there's always like, okay, we have this complex phenomena like, why is death bad? And then you just like you have to come up with one principle. Yeah. So what's the you know that and and it's just like what there's probably like like fifty at least different intersecting things about why death is bad and going to be different for different people, different cultures, different times in your life. And it's like you're the idea that like what's the assumption grounding that there's going to be this just one thing like a singular really cause? It? Yeah. Like I think that that psychology as a science is, is focused on this too. Like we make arguments that like, no, this thing explains this thing. I mean, people are really tempted by it. You look everywhere, like you, you like snake oil, right? The whole premise behind snake oil is that here's this one thing that's been, that's been missing and that will cure all of these things. When like the reason that you're miserable and unhealthy is probably like, 42 different things like all of which include your bad sleeping habits your poor anger management your diet Fat. and you're like, you're having unprotected sex in like parking lots <laughs> so just to bring this back full circle i mean i think this is part of that desire the 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 way of making it one principle is a way of trying to make it sort of universal and not particular it's like well if there's so many different reasons and it might be different from everybody that's unacceptable so we we have to just have that this one reason that everybody can share and probably that that's true for everybody on some level and that allows us to get that kind of that transcendental step outward although it doesn't but it's i think that's part of the temptation is, yeah, it is part of the temptation. And the thing is, I, I believe that there can be genuine discoveries about these sort of universals. So like there's there's on the one hand, say, like the desire to, to find what is universal, whether it be a philosophical premise or it be a psychological mechanism. And um, and then but then th that temptation can actively hide like very interesting differences you're losing large swaths of information that presumably would be interesting yeah. otherwise because your assumptions are so guided by That's this true. desire like all those interesting purity distinctions yeah that you're losing because you because you lump them all together and it's hard people uh, don't like there to be like you know everybody loves the like you know those paul paul ekman those pictures of the six basic emotions yeah that's elegant I bet you right. if there were seven, it just because there's not a neat row of three, 
three and three, people would be a little more uncomfortable, right? Like nobody wants there to be, and nobody <laughs> wants there to be nine in the U.S. and sixteen in Germany, right? right? Like because then it would be like, what the fuck? Like I don't know. two in Austria. <laughs> yeah, two. <laughs> I used to I used to tell my kids in emotion like class that uh, that he, Hebrew stern. has sixteen words for guilt. Here's a interesting thought, or not an interesting thought, but a question that I. And that that was sort of raised by Joe Henrik when I interviewed him for the book. So is this something that's just even this, this need to take this transcendental step backwards to justify, to give some sort of universal rational justification? Is that a local thing? Is that um, something that we do in the West but that other cultures wouldn't think of doing. And his example was like, they don't think their moral rules are binding for everybody. And if you ask them why they do it, it's like asking them why they like mashed potatoes. Right. Um, it's like, I, I can't justify liking. If you don't like mashed potatoes, that's fine. Um, but I was reading this novel called Broken April by this Albanian writer, Ismail Kadare. And it's a it's a really fascinating book about this um, these these Albanian Highlanders. You know, they get involved in these blood feuds that last for generations, and like families are killing other families. And and it's told part of it is told from the perspective of this son in the in in one of these families who's involved in a blood feud and now there's a you know he he knows that he's a target and and he's thinking like he thinks about other people like what must their lives be like he's is like kind of a, a sign of wonderment like they don't live in this thing like life and death is 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 or is not something they take for granted like they just you know they don't have this threat hanging over this head and these obligations and this and 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 he wonders sort of which one is better in one sense like would i rather be in that kind of family or not but what he never asks himself is which one is right which one is rational huh. which one is like the right he, he just takes it for granted that that's not how people you know, in other parts of Albania or Europe behave or see the world, but that is how we see the world. Like that's just taken for granted and never questioned. Yeah. No, you know what? I, I actually believe that we overestimate. So we both are more motivated as Westerners to, to take that step and that we underestimate how comfortable people in the rest of the world are with yeah. not taking that step. And you don't even have to go far. Like often, you know, we often talk about like, well, if you had to define morality, like, you know, one of the central features seems to be that um, it's a norm that you believe everybody ought to adhere to. Right. It's not just a preference. Like, I don't just right. like chocolate ice cream. I think you ought to like chocolate ice cream. Right. Um, but there yeah, are just... clearly cases, even like when you look at dietary restrictions you know, amongst Jews, uh, like observant Jews, they don't give a shit if the goy eat shrimp. Right. They think it's wrong for them to like and maybe wrong is the wrong word here, but it certainly has. There's certainly no reason to abandon a priori the notion that that's a moral claim just right. because they don't think that that like non-Jews shouldn't adhere to it. Right. That And that is one case in which like my assumption about what it means to make a moral claim um, is feeding into what I categorize as a moral claim. That's right? a moral claim. Yeah. Right. 
I will say this, like, I think that the temptation is, has been a good one because that is what science is. And so I think that science is just in a different category. Like, I think that the temptation to take... Well, you would. Well, I mean, but, but like we, but we do, we have learned, like science is the one, one thing that has actually actively contributed tangible results. Like, look at this gravitational wave shit, man. It's amazing. It's like, it's, it's fucking amazing that like a Swiss patent clerk scribbled some numbers on his envelope during his like break. And that like now we have like these ma- extraordinarily complex machines that actually prove his theory right. Like that science as <laughs> as, no, as, it, as in South like Park. It puts satellites in. And so I think the mistake is to to then port over that into every other domain. Right. But I think that the, whatever arrogance we have of thinking that we can arrive at universal truths about the empirical world like is a good one it's just that the arrogance bleeds over or maybe it started somewhere else and bled in you know well so there's a there's those are two separate questions like is it good to have that arrogance even if it is ultimately yeah no it's not right you're not actually going to be able to step outside of your scientific paradigm, but it's good to have the ambition to do that because you're going to do better within your paradigm. Or is it that you think you actually can arrive at a kind of true proxy, like greater, greater approximations of the truth? Yeah, about I, the I think that there's the sociology part, which is it's hard for people to be convinced that old ideas were wrong. But I think and I think this is true of, of every aspect of human knowledge. I think it is interesting that science falls prey to this, but I think that what gets, what gets lost in this discussion is that science is probably the least of all to get stuck in its own paradigm. That is there. That's, and that's why I think it's the structure of scientific revolution, because if you wrote a book called the structure of religious revolution, you wouldn't have that much to talk about. (laughs) You just have, like there's there's just like a you know there's like the reformation and the counter reformation and there's just shit that's been around since 6000 years and nobody wants to change their mind about it but science does actually whether you call it ultimate like you know what like let's set aside the question of realism or whatever like just pragmatically like a kid in the congo can actually do an experiment using scientific methods that could show that like bourgeois Western white men were wrong. And like, that's, that's the beauty of the scientific method that makes me so optimistic about it. And this is the weird ironic part of like how psychology takes over because, um, and again, not to pick on height, I think that this happens a lot. Like you, you make progress. And I think that like, Height and others before him, like Schwader, Rosin, and Jesse Graham, for instance, like they have ex- they expanded our notion of morality. And but once that happens, there's the fear that you that you feel like you have now figured out what's right, and you entrench even more. And right. so, so you can kind of see this happening, where like you can start seeing people dig their heels and they've been fighting this good fight to like tell people that they're wrong to be so narrow. And then that's causing them to dig their heels in. And before you know it, their heels are so dug in that somebody who comes in and disagrees 
is just leading to the same response that the other people used to have. It's super ironic that that we might think of John as being entrenched in his views now. Um, Given that he was the one that was sort of... right. You know what I liked about your speech and I relate to is you're starting burning bridges part of your career, which I've been like, I've been doing for the last two or three years. I had a build where You comfort. just start like, you just start taking the thing that you used to believe in and that people you work with and your colleagues and your friends and the people that you really like, and you just kind of trash like the very kind of core root of what they're doing. <laughs> two things. One, I... It, you know, I feel like you started burning bridges before you had built them. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you were just you, throwing, build, you were just the throwing have to be there. in the water and hoping it hit <laughs> someone. <laughs> just, <laughs> I do find myself as I get older as like being more motivated by disagreeing with people than I was before, um, where I was more right. motivated by saying something new. And so I have to constantly say like. Fuck to like it's not worth my effort to like disagree so much with people like let me just yeah. try to make a positive contribution you know yeah no I agree it's easier to disagree in the sense that you have something to work with and you have a paradigm to work with even if you're criticizing the yeah. paradigm but then if you're starting just a whole new thing that's not accepted as a as a, an appropriate framework to work with then that's harder to do yeah but that's like a legitimately good reason to have something like tenure you know, yeah, yeah, yeah is that allows you to do that. that's true except for that people use it as a way to allow themselves to like give speeches just dissing everybody <laughs> all right man so we're gonna do a psychology article next time we're gonna take a break and do um, like maybe a movie, a episode, movie episode paul bloom paul yeah yeah maybe we should do a paper and a movie with paul we need to just milk him